talking about chicken a la king Mango and garbanzo tabbouleh potatoes and vegetables With roasted garlic and basil Zucchini ziti Granola fruit bar Look at all this beautiful food Guys, welcome to a very special episode of Green Eggs and Dan. I'm very excited for today's guest. <laughs> so excited, in fact, that I was up at 5 a.m. Two flights later, I'm in Bozeman, Montana, with a man I've been fascinated and entertained by for years, Steve Ranella. Steve is first and foremost a hunter. He is the host of the wildly popular Netflix show Meat Eater, now in its eighth season. He is the author of the best-selling American Buffalo in Search of a Lost Icon and his autobiography of sorts, an incredible book I just finished on the flight over here, Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. Amazing book. And your cookbook, The Meat Eater. The, the Meat Eater, Eater Fishing Game Cookbook. Which is, you sold more copies of that than anything else. Yeah. It was, uh, like, it was like a hit. It was a, it was a sleeper hit. It was a hit. The man I like to call the Blue Collar Bourdain, Steve Ranella. <laughs> Do you hate when I call you that? I... No. I guess I just, I mean that you're one of the few hosts on TV who isn't hosty. You know what I mean? Oh, that's like what I you mean? Like, I feel oh, like you're you. yourself, which you don't see a lot of. Mm-hmm. And I feel like after, this is the thing, the thing that Bourdain did for me, which you do as well, is that I would be, like, looking to book a flight to wherever the hell he just was yeah. by the end of the episode. And like I feel that way after I watch some of some of your some of your episodes. Like I want to do that Maryland hike, the Maryland hunt that you did. Yep, that looked so incredible. Yeah, I think it's. I think that it takes. Oh, by the way, my listeners, I'm a hunter. Uh, you didn't know that until now. <laughs> <laughs> I think Please it, stay. Don't leave. Don't leave. It takes a. Um, it's hard to like be yourself on camera. Oh yeah. It's not what it's. It's not like. It's not the easy part. Yeah. Do you have fun on it, or would you rather no one was there? No, I enjoy it. You do? Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. I like I like the work. Um, when, when I say that, I have friends that have just like wonderful personalities and they're great, and I bring them on and um, and they don't have like if they just if they just don't care, like they're not interested, they don't want they don't want attention. Yeah. And I'm like, please just come on and do it. Come on and do it. And they, and they don't see. There's nothing for them to gain. They don't like attention. They don't want attention. They they once you put a camera on them, oftentimes they just don't have the energy to be themselves. Right, right. Do they get all weird? No, they just they just shut down. They're like it's just, like once you point that at me, it's too hard to be myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like I can't rise to the occasion. I get it. I get it. It's a weird thing. Yeah. It's a it's the uh, Heisenberg uh, uncertainty principle. Sure, you got a light on you. It changes everything. Yeah. But the thing that I love uh, most about your hunting show is that it's almost equal parts. Probably not equal parts, but I'd say seventy thirty hunting to cooking and the food uh, aspects of the of the hunt. Yeah, that, is, that yeah. If you wound up breaking it down, um, I could almost tell you like because I hate to betray the formula. Um, and with an axe structure. Here we go. But yeah, it's probably almost exactly that. 73. <laughs> <laughs> I broke the formula. Before we get into the show anymore, we are going to go into your fridge. You sent me a picture of your fridge. You guys can see it on my Instagram, at StandUpDan. Steve, this might be the most well-stocked fridge we've had on the show. So yeah. In and, and two seasons. To be honest with you, to be honest with your listeners, our, our producer had said that we needed a photo. And I had... There was, I don't want to say it took too long, but over a, uh, there was a days past and I was prepping up for a little sausage project and knowing that I needed to take my image, I I took an image when I thought it was in a provocative state. I mean, it's very provocative right now. Because there's a very, like, there's like a mysterious jug there that I thought was interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff. (laughs) Let's get started with the refrigerator area. Yeah, the okay. right, yeah, the, the viewer, looker's right. Okay. What do you no, call it, stage? Stage uh, stage left. It is? Stage left, viewer right. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's been so long since I took high school theater. <laughs> You've got something like 20 lemons here? We were down filming in Texas. Okay. And winter, t- just, just over between, well, I got home from the trip, when uh, we were filming in Texas with a chef, with a hunter and chef Jesse Griffiths, mm-hmm. who has like the best restaurant in Austin, Texas. This is the guy you were telling me about. Die Dewey. Yeah, I have his damn T-shirt on right now. Nice. Um, Shout out. And people don't. I didn't realize, or I didn't give it much thought. Like wintertime is citrus time. Mm-hmm. Um, he only cooks. If you look at his menu, his menu says um, 
in very small print at the bottom of the menu, it says everything is from around here. Mm-hmm. And you might look at that and be like, oh. but it's like, this dude makes his own olive oil. Get out of like, here. When he says everything is from around here, nothing comes through the door of that kitchen that's not from Texas. No way. Like to, to the point where it's in borderline insanity. Wow. I'll, that The olive oil. Because that's the thing. At some point, you're like, I would imagine you're like, I'm, there's no way I'm going to make olive oil no, better. No, these guys that. buy, they like, they get their hands on a bunch of olives. and Wow. Like, Press them. Sorry, yeah. Oh, cured olives. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. They, cured, oh, they just, everything they do. So, you know, they, they render their own lard. It's just crazy stuff. Anyways, we were down hanging out and it was citrus time and we went to a citrus stand and bought bags of citrus. And so... We're gonna we did them we use them to make ceviche like we made heart like uh he makes a ceviche with heart okay um wait a ceviche with uh, isn't ceviche game heart with... raw fish right yeah but he makes same concoction like the citrus and and the same seasoning interesting but instead of putting raw fish in he puts raw heart he mint he he cubes up heart in the same size cubes that you'd see cubed up fish in hmm. and and does like a, a venison heart. Wow. Ceviche. So we had all this citrus and I brought it all home with me. I brought all the leftovers and the guys that work with, we all divided them up. We all had a bag of grapefruits. We all had like a bag of lemons. We yeah. all had a bag of oranges. And that's why I have all those lemons. Okay. I don't normally stockpile lemons like that. Okay, got but it. But that's where the, they all came from. I was a little curious about that. What's really funny, can I, uh, shortly after this photo was taken, Yeah. I had this giant sack of grapefruits and we go to my friend's ranch. And my five-year-old, like the whole time we we're there, because I just come home, and then we like, I got home, and we go to my friend's ranch to stay at my friend's ranch for a few days. And the whole time we we're there, we're eating these grapefruits that I had from Texas. This last weekend, um, I take my five-year-old to the friend's ranch, and he comes in the door, and he's like, "Oh, I'd like a grapefruit." <laughs> <laughs> no, starts connecting the dots. Assuming <laughs> it's like, "Oh, the grapefruit place, great." <laughs> So what is that? I'm assuming that's what all the juice boxes are in here. This is for the kids. That's their lunch. So we have a we have a nanny who's um, very organized, and that's and that's for when they get a juice box for lunch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that drawer. I actually moved her out of that drawer. Okay. Because if you look, the produce, the drawers are wrong. Okay, I you bumped, got the crisper. I bumped the kitty stuff down just last week. Okay. And moved my uh, produce up one. So got if it. you were to look now, this is reversed. Oh, really? Why'd you do that? The crisper. Crisper. The setting. Yeah. You know, lettuce was not holding up the way I would like it to. Okay. So I had to move it. And when you have a class, like uh, I'm, you know, I have, I think it's like very healthy uh, organizational needs yeah and she does too and when there's a sometimes there's a clash of two organizers yeah but we we come together interesting we come together interesting find common ground i mean (laughs) because it's a subject we both love that i i could see that being either the best thing or the worst thing (laughs) this is this i love the organization though the cheese drawer is next level well more fucking cheeses listen you just had a cheese party let me tell you a couple things that happened tell me the cheese i have uh one of my Best friends in the world is a man named Doug Duran, who who's been on the show multiple times. He's been on the, our podcast a bunch of times. Doug Duran lives in the driftless area of Wisconsin. Okay, this area where he lives looks like a dairy advertisement, like he's, green hills, red barns, silos. He's yeah, he's the guy from when you went deer hunting with yeah. the with the two girls. Yep. Yes. Okay. Um, Doug lives like in dairy country. Yeah. Doug's buddy lives in dairy country. So Doug and his buddy came out here to fish and stayed in my guest house. And then they're both from dairy country. So they, when they need to do someone a good turn, they send them a bunch of cheese, bunches of cheese. So I got on both these guys' good side because they both stayed in and they must not have communicated with one another because they got home and then each sent me cheese care packages. I love it. That's why I have all that cheese. So great. I don't normally have all that cheese. <laughs> There's like 20 <laughs> wedges of cheese Dude, in here. And a lot of that cheese is like, it's crazy, like eight-year-old, 12-year-old cheese. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. We're still getting through it. Oh, I mean, it's cheese. It lasts. Yeah. My kids, when you when they think cheese, they think 
like a like Velveeta slice wrapped in plastic. So I'll be like, oh, you want some cheese, do you? How about this 20-year-old sharp cheddar? <laughs> You've got some funky cheeses. It, it, I see more green than yellow. So you got some funky, like, blue cheeses there, it seems. You know, uh, funny story about this cheese, too, is the, the first time the guy, the first time one of the guys, Tyson Hall, the first time he sent me a cheese care package, a dude had run over our mailbox. Uh-huh. So, like, the cheese didn't get delivered. They couldn't deliver the mail. Cheese didn't get delivered. <laughs> Eventually gets delivered. I'm out of town, and my wife gets the box, and it's just dripping. It's like like dripping cheese juice. Oh no! It's August. Okay. Oh. And the thing had been hanging out oh, in the post no. office. It's dripping cheese juice, and she knows her instinct is to throw it out, but she knows that I will never let it rest, and like that I will have too many questions about like what happened, <laughs> like what. And so she just stuck this whole stinky mess into the freezer. Just to show you the evidence. Because she's like, I know that you'll need to, that you'll really need to sit with this. <laughs> yeah. So when you're ready, the box of rotten cheese is in your freezer. Oh my God. You can go investigate it and, and judge me on the call I made. For the listeners who don't know Steve, <laughs> you are the most anti-waste. Oh yeah. Waste person ever with yeah. anything. And so that that's the second batch of uh, uh, Car Valley cheese. How long do you think cheese stay? Like when, if you get mold on cheese, do you just do you just uh, scrape it off and keep going? Yeah, in because fact, is, some it, of this it was invented to preserve milk. That's exactly. the whole raison d'être of cheese. My wife doesn't like cheese once it becomes splotchy with yeah. mold. Uh huh. And I uh, had a bunch of this cheese get really moldy. Yeah. And I cut into it and got the core out, <laughs> and I was serving it to neighbors. And was telling them it was core cheese. And, <laughs> and no one asked for clarification. I've never but come into your house for fucking dinner. <laughs> it's so funny. Man. It's core cheese. We'll be back in a moment. Let's talk about the elephant in the fridge. Yeah. Second row next to the Le Creuset. Mm-hmm. There is what looks like a science experiment in chloroform. That's yeah. That's why I'm gonna... this this is why I selected this moment <laughs> because I'm. Uh, <laughs> it's just like there's something everything about them suspended in some sort of liquid. Everything about them. Those are hog middles. Those are hog middles. Okay. Um, oh, is it the, like case? Is it in like the world of charcuterie? Yeah, it, those are hog casings. So they sell casings when you go to a diner. You go to Denny's and you get a breakfast sausage. That's generally a sheep casing, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll specify if you go to order casings, you'll buy like sheep casings, and they'll specify the the mills. Right. Okay. So these, what you're looking at here, I believe, would be not a hank. I think a hank of casings is enough casings to case 100 pounds of sausage. Really? I think that that's what a hank is. Okay. I could be off. Something like that. Like a hank is, you know, a quantity. I can't believe there's a word for that. The this is that's enough casings right there to do twenty-five pounds of links. Um, and they are hog middles. And hog middles, I believe, tend to run like thirty-eight to forty-two millimeter okay. hog casings. Uh-huh. They'll come packed in salt. Uh, and what you the first step is you put them in a colander and Rinse them as much as you can. Leach out the salt. And then you need to basically, like, you're uh, rehydrating them in water. And then you will eventually run a slug of water through that whole casing to rinse out the inside. A buddy of mine who does, who has a restaurant and does a lot of charcuterie, he'll then take his casings and even, this is controversial, mm-hmm. he'll, he'll put a little bit of vinegar hmm. in the water to make them even more pliable and hmm. workable. But you need to be a better charcuterie man or charcuterie woman to work with the more pliable case because you could have blowouts. I've never tried to make my own sausage. Yeah. I've, is... I've ground it up. I, I've, I've put in the spices, but, you know, I've, I've never done the casing. I really li- I, I like to do it. It's labor-intensive. It's um, tedious at times. Yeah. We used to do a version of it when we were younger where it would be like everybody we hung out with, but during hunting season, you kind of like save up. We'd just save up these bags of like trim, right? Mm-hmm. So you'd, you'd do a deer and you'd cut the steaks and roasts and whatever cuts and asabuco cuts and and you'd eventually you'd inevitably wind up with like chunks of trim you know and if you like just the convenience of having cased sausages in your freezer so like sweet italian bratwurst whatever 
you'd kind of we'd save these gallon sized Ziplocs right of, of meat, and then we'd have a sausage party. Yeah, and at a sausage party, like a everyone party. everyone comes over with what they're going to do, and you just do like one big thing. We've even this is going to sound insane. We've had like a bunch of people together and have done like upwards of three hundred pounds of cased sausages for like a large group of people. Everybody's bringing in whatever, and we just like set a date and time. And the mess is like you just can't even begin to comprehend the mess. Yeah. So uh, as I've gotten older and less mess tolerant, and just busier, I'll do a small amount. Why do you pick the hog casing over over the sheep? I've done breakfast sausages and sheep casing. Mm-hmm. I just like I, I like these better. The ones I made this day were sweet Italian. Okay. Which I made with elk meat, and I will do a variety of things with them, including like a way my kids like to have it is we'll do pasta. Yeah. With sauce, but then I'll just I'll brown the sweet Italian sausages and cut them up into chunks. Yeah, and put them in there. Or we'll um, you could even if you felt like it. It's kind of like a little bit of extra work for no reason, but I'll just break the casing and saute. Yeah, the insides. Yeah, that's usually how like I think in an Italian restaurant, if you're getting something with a sausage in a pasta, they'll take it out of the case. Yeah, or yeah. have never cased it in the first place. Yeah, we've done. We've made our own hot dogs. Earlier I mentioned my friend, a uh, guy, his name is Matt Weingarten, and he used to have a really cool restaurant in New York, and um, we did a lot of sausage stuff together. And what re- what restaurant was it? It was called Inside Park. Okay. Um, was that that St. Saint, Saint Bart's Cathedral? He had a restaurant in there? No way. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, he used to do a lot of charcuterie, and we made some hot dogs together, and, and uh, it's funny, like, to get the, and that's a thin casing. Yeah. Um, to get the snap of a hot dog is a bitch. It is. It's hard, like really. It's so hard to make your own hot dogs, man. But I, but I can make like really good brats. I can make really good links. Yeah. It's so hard and disappointing. You get done and it's just not. I gave up. You know, that's one of those. I'll get back things. into it when I retire, maybe. That's one. So you are you eating exclusively game meat these days? Mm. At home, almost. Yeah. Because we a couple things happen. We cut our. If we make ground meat or sausage, we cut it with domestic pork. Yeah. But this year, it's kind of like been a special year because my buddy's got a, he's got a ranch and he's got a ranch manager that wound up buying this giant pig for 27 bucks. Okay. Named Beans. And he fattened the pig on expired horse feed. Okay. So I got all kinds of fat off beans. Huh. And then a friend of mine. um, Wait, hold on a second. He has... A pig. He bought a pig for $27. How did he buy it for $27? Because it was a big ass boar and they don't have, and like no one wants it. Oh, really? Yeah. And he gave it expired food, which is probably fine. So he buys it for $27 bucks and just, there's like a thing like when you're packing horses in the mountains, uh-huh. in the old days, not people still do it, you bring bales of hay because there's a couple of things like you might get up in the mountain, like if you're high elevations in the mountains, there might not be feed. It's wintertime, there's snow on the ground. Right. F- horses can't get natural feed. So you'll bring in supplementary feed. But you might also be in a situation where you take the horses up in the mountains and just corral them, put them out, mm-hmm. and, and there's just not enough for them to eat. So mm-hmm. you supplement their food. And you could bring in bales of hay, but then in some areas you have to bring in weed-certified, weed-free certified hay, which is hard to get and it's expensive because you can't be introducing noxious weeds into pristine habitats. Right. And so they make this compressed feed. You can, it's like very, the horses love it, it's compressed, it's packable, you know, it's like very densely packed. And so yeah. it's not as much bulk. He had all this expired, uh, compressed feed that he fattened beans on. Okay. And then we helped him kill beans and he didn't want the fat. So we got all, I, anyways, I had a bunch of fat from beans. The pig, yeah. So that was cool. And I actually used beans. I, I was using beans, the beans, the pig <laughs> when I made this, but I also, another friend of mine raised pigs this year. Okay. And I bought one from him. Oh, nice. So when you say like, do I eat all wild game? We gave a lot of it away, yeah, and then I use a lot of it to grind up with my game meat. But actually, this year is an anomaly because I have like a domestic pig, yeah. But I, I but I like the pig because my like I like the pigs. My friend raised it. That's cool. So it feels to me like very game like, yeah. Meaning I have a very immediate association with it, and I sort of get like its story. And what matters to me a lot is like the the story of things. Yeah. Like just kind of understanding it, right? Yeah. So I would view like beans the pig, the pig I bought for my friend. You should call it sausage and beans. Yeah, it's a great sausage, idea. Sausage, sausage and beans. I just view it as being um more worthy 
I get that. Just knowing about it. You know, and I, so I, I, that's what I use to make this stuff. I, I've heard you kind of when when you break down. I didn't know that there was a difference between hunting in Europe and America. Mm. And, and I kind of learned from you that the main thing is that there's a lot more public land in America. That's very true. And it's yeah. a lot harder to get access to hunting land in Europe. You need to like know a rich guy or something. Yeah, you got to right? be a little bit careful. Like generalities, in all fairness, you have to be a little bit careful because we're comparing a continent to a country, right? Yes. So there's a lot of places. But like our, our most immediate association would be with, you know, Great Britain and, and you know, and the system there. And, and yeah. our wildlife system is in many ways a reaction against the system there. And the system there is that uh, a thing that not many Americans understand, but it's, it's cool to understand, is that when you're an American... In this country, wildlife is owned by the people. It's managed for you. Like the, the trust is managed for you by your states, in some cases by the feds, depending on if it's endangered species or migratory waterfowl. There's a federal oversight so that one state can't like screw another state. Right, right. But generally, like as an American, you own wildlife. It's managed for you by the states. Private landowners might be able to restrict one's access to it but they have no more right of ownership over an animal than you do, speaking generally. They're what we call the European model, which is, is like I said, like greatly informed by, you know, like the systems in Scot Scotland, England, would be that when you own land and there's animals on it, those are your animals. Right. If one would move to a pro one property to the next, like its ownership would change. Um, and, and our system's not like that. Right. Yeah. One thing, though, that I think that Europe has over us. Go on. Is that the restaurants in Europe can serve wild game, and the restaurants in America can't? I can wild see. Hunt, like there's yeah. hunting seasons I in France where it's like, oh, okay, for the commercial markets, the hunters bring in their food, they sell it to the chefs, and you know you're getting actual wild game. Whereas in America, when you're having venison at a restaurant, that's not wild it's not game; wild. it's farmed venison. Yeah. Or if you're having, you know, uh, pheasant, same. I mean, so there's like, why is that? You think it's good, I think, or you think that, that that's having one up on us. I disagree. I think it's a bummer that you can't really eat wild game in America at a restaurant or something, and and that it, it only has to be either you hunted it or someone else hunted it that you know. I think, I think it would be great if more people had access to it. Well, you got to understand why that happened. You know how there's a lot of things that will happen where we lost track of why. We lose track of why things are the way they are. So people like to um, hack on farm subsidies. Oh, those farmers, I get subsidized, right. doing nothing, right? But then you look like, well, why is that the case? Well, like, you know, during World War II, there was massive food shortages. People were starving to death. It was hard to, like, field and feed an army, right? So we, someone, we, we kind of developed the system by, like, we need to make an ag system that can be turned on and off. And that there's people, like, at the ready, to produce agriculture and, and that when there's a dip in the market or if a financial thing happens, all the farmers don't go need to sell their land and then there's a famine and we can't feed people. Right. So we like come up with a system where we help farmers stay in business and be in, in, in weather economic trends and, and keep land ready to, to spring into action and produce food. And now we just bitch about it. We just bitch about farm subsidies and, right. oh, you know, it's like so horrible. But there's a story behind it. So with wild game, the, the dark ages of American wildlife were in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And back then, all through the 1800s, we had, mark, we had commercial market hunters in this country. And I'm not, like, I'm not going down and making like a moral judgment on commercial market hunters. I probably would have been one. But what commercial market hunters did is he went out, you know, basically it's public pro, like public, a public resource, be the wildlife, and you shot it and sold it, and it was served in restaurants. So we all heard stories about people shooting buffalo and leaving the carcass to rot and just taking the tongue because the tongue was worth three bucks right. pickled in New York. Um, you know, Daniel Boone, I can't remember the exact number, but he one year processed about 150 black bears and turned it into smoked hams that were sold. Market hunters drove the passenger pigeon into extinction. Many of the things we now regard as perfectly common mallard ducks, white-tailed deer, wild turkeys were dr driven to borderline extirpation and extinction mm -hmm. from satisfying wildlife markets. When people in, in Teddy Roosevelt's age, 
and people in that era, early 1900s, when they looked to pump the brakes, one of the more immediate effective thing was to go after wildlife markets. Interesting. Yeah. It was quicker, rather than getting all these states on board with adopting wildlife laws and putting in regulatory structures and finding a way to have hunters fund wildlife like we do now, instead of depleting it, that like took a long time. It happened, but it took a long time. A most immediate thing you could do was were sportsman groups, like hunter groups, who were trying to preserve wildlife, because if you didn't preserve it, you, you couldn't be a hunter, would come in and, and, and like to make a play and be like, in New York, we're going to ban the sale of wild game in New York as a way of drying up the market. Hmm. And so eventually when we came in with this whole suite of wildlife laws that gave us the, 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 the wildlife splendor we have now, I'll, I mean, we have the... This isn't even a debatable thing. We have like the world's leading wildlife system in terms of like how popular, how, how many people live here, our economic output. The fact that we have all the wildlife that we have, it almost doesn't even make sense. Yeah. It, it's part of that is from having banned that sale. So people who are versed in wildlife history in this country view market hunting and market wildlife and the commodification of wildlife as emblematic of this very rapacious period in American history when we pretty much shit the bed on wildlife. Got it. Now we have this new embarrassment of riches. Yeah. And people aren't are hunting less and less than they ever did. And we have this phenomenon of um, the urban suburban deer that we really don't know what to do with. And so there's this re-emerging conversation around, maybe we should sell all these things. Or maybe we should open it up where people can sell these things because there's so many. And people like me, look and man, we view it with deep suspicion. Hmm. Deep suspicion. Because it's like, we'll do it, of course we'll do it differently now. There's there's an apprehension about the minute you commodify wild animals. Now, there's all kinds of exceptions to this. For instance, like fur-bearing animals can be commodified. You can't sell the meat. Right. But you can trap beaver. You trap a beaver and sell a beaver hide, and they'll use it to make wool felt. And when you buy a Stetson 10X hat or go to like sometimes a very fine pool table and it's a very fine felt that's made from a beaver's hide that a person could buy and sell, you could kill a deer, get its head mounted, and sell that mount. You can't sell the meat. Do you think that's okay? Being able to sell the fur but not the meat? I'm comfortable with the contradiction mm-hmm. because I like the systems. We took different regulatory paths with different types of wildlife, and we have different ways of regulating it. And you might look at it from afar and might see, like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, why can you do this, but you can't do that? And you can do this, but you can't do that. For instance, you can um, catch a beaver or whatever. Let's say a mink, right? A trapper can catch a mink and yeah. sell the mink hide and not utilize the carcass. If you were to kill a duck and not utilize the carcass, that's wanton waste. So we have a system where we look and be like, what are the things of value on an animal? Um, and we mandate wise use of the things that we regard to be a value. Right. So it's full of things that would look weird. Like why could a guy, a trapper, like you can't shoot a mink, that's illegal. You can catch a mink in a trap not eat the meat, and that's legal, right. and sell the hide, and that's legal, but a deer, you if you could ditch the hide, which is normal, if you ditch the meat, it's illegal. You cannot trap a deer. You can only shoot a deer. How does this make sense? But it's just like we have this hodgepodge of things that just work. Right, right, right. You're saying don't rock the boat because right now it's working really well. Yeah, but I also don't want to be like a person who just thinks that um, everything's static and we don't need to reevaluate things. So right. I'm open to the reevaluation. But I'm just saying like when I often hear people who like wild game expressing the view that, man, wouldn't it be nice? Um, and, and my initial thing is like, ah, tread lightly. You've changed Tread my, lightly on the commodification. You've of, changed on my opinion wildlife. on this. You've changed my opinion. First of all, I thought it was just because of like USDA, like it, there's no, you know, everything has to be the meat mm-hmm. has to be regulated. That adds that adds complications. Yeah, there, there would be additional comp, but that's not insurmountable. We'll be back in a moment, but first, the concept of ground meat stuffed in an intestinal casing may be one of the oldest foodstuffs ever talked about. 
There are mentions of it in ancient Akkadian cuneiform tablets from 3000 BC. Chinese sausage was first written about in 600 BC. Sausage was even given a shout out in Homer's epic, The Odyssey. So next time you wake up hungover, remembering you drunkenly scarfed down a couple dirty dogs, don't beat yourself up. You were just being human. However, if you put relish on your hot dogs, you're a disgusting human being and deserve to be banished from the species. Okay, back to the show. My friend uh, manages a restaurant in New York City called The Grill, and it's a very high-end restaurant. And he said that they're buying, um, they're buying uh, pheasant from Scotland. Sure. Hunted. Yeah. And serving it. Yeah, so there's there's what yeah there's you venison. You get around the system. There's venison that comes from well because it's point of harvest. Yeah, right? interesting. There's venison that comes out of uh, there's venison that comes out of Scotland. Mo- most time when you walk it, like for most people to say you know like like typically, if you walk into a restaurant in the United States and you see venison on the menu, what you're buying, there's all kinds. Normally, what the, this is normally true, like. I don't know. I want to say seven out of. I don't want to say seven out of ten, but let's say seven out of ten times. Okay. You buy venison restaurant. What you're buying is a European deer species, red deer. Okay. Very close related to the American elk. You're buying a European deer species that was introduced into New Zealand and is raised under a livestock model in New Zealand and exported to the United States, and that is most American venison. Huh. It's a European deer farmed in New Zealand and sold here. Interesting. So you can't eat American venison in America unless it's You're not going to get it in a restaurant. What is the main there flavor are... profile difference between the two? Oh, you wouldn't know. Really? No. Well, because, I mean... You'd have to be so... Because it, look, there's definitely there's, a difference There's so many between... other contributing factors. There's like species, right? So there's like generally... Let's just say I, I hunt mule deer and I hunt white-tailed deer. Mule deer and white-tailed deer, there's differences. But there's differences between those two things, but there's also differences between every deer. In the livestock model, you know, like picture like how specific the livestock model is. You, you, you take a, you know, you have a breed of cow. Yeah. And you breed these cows and you breed, the, the females are almost like identical. And you're using semen from the same bull to breed a whole bunch of these things in a herd. Right. And they're on milk. And then at some point, like X number of months, they're weaned and move to a different diet. And then at 800 pounds, they're basically all hitting 800 pounds within a very narrow window of time. And they're all moved to another like pretty specific diet to they get to 1,200 pounds. And then they're all pretty much the same age. And all these 1,200-pound animals that are all the same age go and get slaughtered in the same place under the same conditions. And you have a thing where like when you buy beef, it just is a way. There's variation, but you have expectations about what that's going to be like. And when you see like black Angus on it, you have even greater certainty about what it's going to be like. Right. One deer, like you go out deer hunting and you shoot a year and a half old doe. The difference between her, say, and some eight-year-old doe that just got hung up in a barbed wire fence for 12 hours and had coyotes gnawing at her back leg and then got herself free, was just like... A, a, a big delta, right, <laughs> right, right, between those two deer. Yeah. So in terms of like the difference between this kind of deer and that kind of deer, just the difference between one deer and the next yeah. is enormous. Yeah. So sure, there are differences in her speed. There's like there's different, everything's so different. It's one of the beauties of wild game. A- absolutely. It's just all over the place. I feel like when you talk in your book about eating bear, mm-hmm. the range of flavors oh my, yeah. that... Hugely variable. It, it's it's like some of them are, it tastes like blueberries. Yeah. And some taste like garbage. And you can get them where their fat is uh, colored from berries. That's where insane. it has like a tint to it. Or you can get them where there's but, a story I told a hundred times. I, we, we 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 have a fish shack up in Alaska, and we were smoking a bear ham from there one time. And I borrowed my neighbor's smoker. It's in a remote area, but we 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 used to have a neighbor there. Um, uh, a delightful guy, and we borrowed his smoker, and I smoked a bear ham in there. And eating the bear ham was like just tastes like salmon, not in a good way, right? And I went and complained to him. I'm like, dude, man, you gotta clean that smoker out. Uh, that freaking salmon flavors all over everything. And he's like, I've never smoked salmon in that smoker. It was just like that bear had eaten that much rotten salmon. Wow. 
the, it just and their fat holds it. The fat holds it more than the meat. Absolutely. I mean, that's that can mess up a venison uh, dish if you have too much silver skin in it. Yeah, people. Yeah, people and and fat. When people talk about deer meat tasting gamey, yeah. One, it's it's a hard to define word, but when people talk about deer meat t- tasting gamey, uh, man, the majority of the time it's like they're talking about they're eating the tallow. You don't even call it fat. The tallow, right? The tallow has a strong taste, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger in a freezer. You yeah. think of a freezer being like pretty static. Yeah. In, in fact, you can. I've eaten venison that had spent seven years in a freezer. Mm-hmm. Properly wrapped, it was a pretty good facsimile to six-month-old venison. Wow. If you don't trim it, um, it's a whole other deal, man. That fat just eventually just goes bad. So even if you put it in with the fat in the freezer and then took it out and then trimmed it, you're still screwed. Oh, yeah, you could be, but yeah, the fat will go bad. Like the fat gets nasty tasting. The bear fat will get nasty tasting. In a freezer. <laughs> I got, it still spoils. I have no... I have, it goes rancid. I have no interest in eating bear. I don't know, man. Something about carnivores. Sure, man. I feel. I find a lot of people feel that way. The writer, Jim Harrison, he... Uh, also, you got trichinosis and the way you yeah, describe that sounds I deserve, fucking I deserved awful. it. But uh, the writer, Jim Harrison, I can't remember one of his essays. You know, he's a big, you know... That's back when they used the word gourmand, right? He was a yeah. gourmand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one throws that around anymore. But uh, uh, I mean, a, a glutton. I like to consider myself. If I don't get gout before I die, I, I did not. I didn't. I failed this life. Yeah, like he's like from that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he only just recently died, but like a time when people like discussed gout. Right, right, right. Or you'd sit down and eat like a gross of oysters, which <laughs> is like a dozen, dozen. <laughs> right. Um, meaning the guy ate everything. Yeah. But he couldn't eat bear, and he describes in one of his essays where um, he saw one skinned out and hanging, and it was just a man. It just looks like a human. It's a man hanging, a skinned out man, and he just like couldn't do it. I get. It. I know a lot of people that just do not like the idea of eating bear meat. Yeah, I would do it, but I don't think that I'd make a habit of it. I ate the first bear meat I ever had, and, and yeah, it must have been the first bear meat I ever had. I was in, just finishing up high school. My brother got one, and man, we loved it. Really? Yeah. Oh. We loved it. I don't know. I and mean, we would just pot roast it and stuff, you know? Yeah. And I was turned on to it. But I don't hunt bears as much now as I did once upon a time. It's funny. I actually had a shot on a bear when I went deer hunting last. Like one came through? He came through randomly and I just fucking freaked out. And I was, I also was in my head, I was like, I'm not going to eat this. So I'm not going to shoot it. And oh, that's, Mo, probably, that's smart. And then Mo, my buddy who I talked to about on your podcast extensively, my hunting partner, he, Still gives me shit for not killing the bear. He's yeah. like, you would have been a legend in this town, <laughs> man. <laughs> and I was like, I have no interest. It, it's funny. I find that um, people I'm close with and, and spend a lot of time with, it, it, there's something about bears where I find that enthusiasms about bear hunting for a lot of people, a lot of people that I'm close with, enthusiasms about bear hunting fade. Really? They fade. Why? I don't know. There's just something about bears. Are they man. just too human-like? Is that it's just, what it is? Yeah, I think that at, at a point they're they're just so different and they're up to things. I think at a point, like people watch them and they just view them differently. Hmm. I just found that people stop viewing them as something to eat. Yeah. My brother Danny, he did you know quite a bit of bear hunting, and he remembered a point. Like normally, you get something when you're a hunter. You get an animal. And you're like really happy. And it's like wow, I'm going to use this thing. And yeah. He talked about the last bear he got. I was with him. And he walked up, and the the excitement about now taking sort of legal and moral possession of this carcass, he more had a, uh. Yeah. And he's like, man, I can't, I guess I'll never do that again. Yeah. That can't be the feeling. No. The, the feeling of now needing to, like, utilize it. Yeah. <laughs> he just wasn't as enthusiastic as with a moose. He lives in Alaska. The moose, you're like, hell yes, because this is what we're going to eat all year, man. And yeah, it's great. It's delicious. And you can make anything you want with it. It's like having a cow in your freezer. <laughs> like there's no, like that enthusiasm never fades. Yeah. I think that when I when I get a deer now, which is about once a, once every two years, I my mind goes, right after I shoot that fucker, my mind goes crazy on all the things I'm going to yeah. make with him. That's a good feeling. Oh. And when you have a, uh <laughs> Now I need to like make sausage sticks and, you know, uh, it's interesting to point out in the frontier era, bear meat was for eating and deer were for leather. Really? Yeah. Bear was the preferred food. No way. You know, 
Interesting. There's a lot of long hunters that hunted deer. They, you could eat venison. And people did eat venison. But um, to get a bear was like you were in a good spot on food. <laughs> right. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's, inter- it's fatty. Like these are people who, you know, these are people who are like somewhat borderline starvation all the time. Mm. And here's this thing. It's like this, like, it's just like, it's got fat. It's filling. Yeah. You can fry. You can make oil and fry with the oil. It was a windfall. Bears were like people. That's what people wanted, man. Wow. They wanted to have a bear. You could get a if you could get a bear in the fall. It's almost like a whale in that you can do so much. Yeah, with it was it. golden, man. Yeah. It was golden. And deer, you know, deer were like it was second second rate food. Really. And now American hunters like deer is top rate. Yeah. And bear is a there's a reluctance. <laughs> it's a about weird. It. It's like uh, lobster. Lobster used to be relegated to prisoners. Yeah. Like there were, I think there were- uh, The pilgrims reg- bitched about it. There were regulations of like, you can, I, I read it once, it was like, you can only only feed your prisoner, feed your prisoners a maximum of like lobster 12 times a month. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had like regulations. Yeah, it's funny the, the way that stuff like that shifts. We're going to take a break, but stay tuned for more. Back to Steve Rinella. We're going to get to these questions. They're uh, standard questions that I ask every guest oh, really? on the show. So your job is extremely easy. Yeah, I don't have to do anything. I just sit <laughs> you here just and did listen. It once. <laughs> what is your earliest food memory? I remember going to Hawaii once and having an artichoke and thinking that it was... Remember it was funny because I was talking about my kid with his idea of grapefruits yeah. being a product of this Montana ranch. Yeah. I remember going to Hawaii and having a grapefruit and... and or, sorry, having a, not a grapefruit, having an artichoke. And really associating artichokes with Hawaii and like remember like seeing a plant I had never laid eyes on before. Yeah. And eating it. And then I also, because of my interest, I, I, I probably overlaid this, you know, my, my recollection of it is probably outsized because of the, 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 my continued interest through life. And you sort of give gravity to things that maybe weren't as impactful and they actually happened. But I remember um, my dad had a big deep fryer that he kept in the garage. And I remember many, many uh, of the wild game meals that he would cook, that we you'd go up to the garage to cook because he had this huge deep fryer. Right. And, um, like, you know, we'd, we'd find a snapping turtle and eating the snapping turtle. Ooh, any good? Oh, wonderful, yeah. Really? And then soft-shell leatherbacks, we called them, that, that turtle meat and sort of, like, how tender it was. I remember that, like, from being very young, just always a lot of excitement about game and excitement about eating unusual things and the way that my my dad would make it like a party oh fun for the neighborhood you know like people would come over because we'd be eating cool shit that's even cool. though we cooked it all the same way that's awesome just cooked in a deep fryer <laughs> throw it in the turkey fryer <laughs> yeah i just remember like that kind of enthusiasm yeah you know, is a thing and, and like i said it might be like outsized in my memory because it's it conforms to a well rightfully it so conforms it like a world awesome. view that i hold right right, so. right. What is your death row meal? You're on death row. You uh, you discharge your gun accidentally. <laughs> you killed someone. Please. Let's just say I'm on death row. <laughs> You're on death row. I don't want to make it too visual of knowing <laughs> why I'm on death row. Um, if I have a diet, like if I was going to design a fad diet, it would be that uh, I like to eat a lot of things that look like they grew out of the dirt. Okay. Or were chopped off of an animal. It's just you look at it and it's like very like vivid. Okay. You know, so a typical meal in my house would be that we would have like a piece of venison loin cooked on a grill. We would have broccoli or asparagus or something that looks like it just grew out of the dirt. And then we have salad leaves that just look like something that grew out of the dirt. It would a death row meal would be like that. Really? It would be that I would look and I'd be like, I can picture this shit. Growing out of the dirt. Okay. I used to be into much more complex cooking, but more and more I just like, I, you know, I'm sure there's names for it. For what? Like that kind of eating. Oh, just like simple. It's just Yeah, it's just like I, like I like to be able to un- visualize. Unfucked with food. Yeah, I just like to be able to visualize. I don't like a lot of things happening to it. Interesting. More and more, the so, older I get. I feel like the people in the prison that you're in death row are going to be like, how the fuck am I supposed to do this, bro? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is a lame-ass meal. That's your, <laughs> that's your plan, though. They're not going to know how to give it to you, and then you're going to live forever. What's the best high-end meal you've ever had? I've had a couple. A couple really like extraordinary ones. But I used to be very suspicious of wine and wine culture. Okay. Still am. 
to some right. extent, but I was suspicious of it and, and just thought it was like such horse shit, you know? And there was a restaurant in Manhattan, Veritas, I think it was called. Yeah. Oh, if you're suspicious of wine, that's not the place to go. Well, check this out, though. It's a huge wine place. A friend of mine, uh, I'm friends with a writer named Ben Wallace, and he years ago wrote a book called The Billionaire's Vinegar. And kind of like one thing led to another. It was a, it was a book about the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. Okay. And uh, one thing led to another, and somehow Ben and I wound up at a very like curated meal with wine pairings at Veritas. Okay. And the food was exceptional and it was kind of like, there must have been like zero like no concerns about budget around the wine. Yeah. And the sommelier would open these wines and describe he'd be like, "Okay, you're going to this is going to happen to you. You know, you're going to taste this, then that, then this and that." And I'd be like, "Bullshit, dude." But then, like, you'd, like, have the food that was right for it, and then you'd taste the wine, and you'd be like, holy shit. It was like um, it was like being at the Jelly Belly factory. Wow. Yeah. I love that. You'd be like, and then you'll notice, like, a hint of popcorn or whatever, you know, and you'd taste it, and be like, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most, like, memorable night, man. I love that. But I, I, I don't even want to know. I don't want to get into the circumstances of how this came to be and the individuals who were there, but it was, like, people that just, like, it was, like, cost was no consideration yeah, yeah so we were probably there is a fine line with emperor's new clothes with the wine stuff though uh, yeah but, but this night and i i agree but i yeah i tasted things and i'm like that's just different my buddy mo i was telling him you you make too much money because he just like picked up a wine habit yeah. And now he's just like Mr. Expert on wine. And it's annoying sometimes, but I also love going to his house because we're opening like crazy bottles of wine that are really delicious. Yeah, the billionaire's the billionaire's vinegar is a is, I mean, it's kind of a story of someone duping wine people. Oh, I think I saw a documentary on it. Is yeah. it that dude in California who could like figure out he was like a mad scientist where he could like figure out a flavor profile of a wine and then mix Cheap well, no, no. What this like guy, that. what he, his advantage was that no one knows what a bottle of wine from 1777 tastes like. Right. <laughs> this was Thomas Jefferson's. Uh, yeah. People were like, ah, I've had 1777 <laughs> wine a hundred times. Don't tell me. He'd be like, okay, tell me what. Then what does it taste like? <laughs> right. <laughs> so people had to be like, oh, I guess that's what it tastes I like. I guess that's it. Uh, another like to counter that yeah. point. I was in Vietnam one time, and, and a guy had shot a little marsupial out of a tree with an air gun. Mm-hmm. And he had like a seven step process to cook this marsupial on an open fire. Okay. Of burning the hair off, eviscerating it, wrapping it in leaves, got chilies from his garden. Hold on. How did you meet this guy? Or are you just walking by and you saw him? We were riding mopeds outside of uh, Natrang. Okay. And there was one of those stands where they press sugar cane into a drink. Yes. Love that. And we stopped in and got the shooting the shit. And he was just a farmer, a pair of cutoff shorts, cooking them. And we got shooting shit and what kind of went around by his fire and he's got like a air gun and a dead marsupial laying there and I took interest and we spent hours there. No way. And just and dude, I'm telling, it's like it's uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. Wow. And just the care, it was it was tet. Yeah. And he was sort of taking his time to make like a special. It was like a guy by himself. How amazing. Making like a very special meal for himself out of a, a rat. Wow. But not a rat, but right. like a rat-like creature Close. shot out of a tree yeah. and just, uh, it was magical, man. Wow. It I'm going to, actually, that was the answer to, I think, my next question, which was, what's the best low-end meal you've ever had? Oh, that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite drunk food? Man, yeah, but see, I used to drink a lot, and then I, I just don't anymore. When I- Cold turkey, or you just don't? Just got much? gradually sick of it. Well, my, we had we had a, a bunch of kids. Yeah. <laughs> so my wife was out of the drinking game for a fair bit of time, or right. like barely drinking. Then we had the kids, and like they don't ask to be born. So it's just hard to be hung over in a bad mood yeah. in the morning, because yeah. like they're like, dude, like I didn't ask you to have me, but here I am. Like- <laughs> Right. This is get your shit together. You're putting me like in an awkward position because now you're like irritated with me, but you had me. Right. That's so what I felt like. I just like I couldn't I couldn't be hung over. Days got short. When I used to be a drinker and yeah. I was a writer and a drinker, if I woke up hungover, I'd be like, okay, I, I'm gonna work like nine hours today. If I start at one, I'll start at one. Right. But I'm gonna put my day in. With kids, it just there's a cap. 
Yeah. Like shit ends. Absolutely. Uh, and so you had to be that you couldn't fit that, that the chunk had to fit precisely. Right. In a right spot. So I just, I just got away from it. But, but when you were drinking, when I was my sort of like kind of like the height of drinking, I was living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we had a great bar we liked. And across from the bar was uh, Yesterdog. Okay. And today's taco. Now we're talking. <laughs> and fucking <laughs> Chili Dog, man, from Yesterdog used to be like, I mean, this place could have just opened at midnight and closed yeah. at 2 a.m. and done all the business they were going to do. But my God, man, the craving. I had some, You'd get for a yesterday, <laughs> and it was just like a chili dog. <laughs> it was the cheapest, like steamy bun. Yeah, um, but then I lived in New York for a while, and there it was just like those, you know, like not raised pizza, like just like those slice, yeah, dollar slices, like sliced pizza. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just think of that as drunk food, man. So I was going to ask you what your favorite hangover food is, but again, this is going back in the wheelhouse. You mean like after you already have a hangover? Uh, you're hungover. You wake up in the morning. You're hungover. I guess we used to abide by that—that that like greasy food settling yeah. your stomach kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think it's. True, I was more but I into like no, true. I was more into what you, I was more into what you ate when you were drunk to prevent than I was into like what you ate once you were hungover. Right. I was more. I guess ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about. You know, I know like in some cultures, like you know, people be like, oh, you have menudo when you're hungover. Oh yeah, you need to have like that uh, the tripe stew. No man, I just can't think of having like a thing where. No, just water and ibuprofen, I guess. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's probably what makes the most sense. If I get back into it, I'll, I'll do some research on that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite celebrity chef? And this doesn't have to be a TV <laughs> chef or anything like that, but someone who's like a food personality that you're like, that's my guy. Yeah, Jacques Pepin. Oh, dude, that's mine. Yeah, we call him Jack Pepin. Jack Pepin. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Pepin. That's mine, and that's actually Ignacio Matos, the chef that uh, oh. from Estella. We he, that's his uh, favorite celebrity chef. He also. has a book Encore, Encore with Claudine, or Encore for God, just a weird name for a book. Yeah, and no, I love that dude, man. He's his his video about I've said this before on the podcast, but his video about how to make an omelet is the mm-hmm. best fucking yeah. food video ever. He speaks my language. I just understand what he's talking about. Yeah, I never register any confusion. Yeah. Like, I get it. He's the best. Yeah, he's I old, get it. I always school. understand what he's talking he's about. He's old school, too. He was like, before, like, you need to be a splashy TV chef. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. just like, ugh, love that. Uh, is there a food that you can't stand eating? Yeah, um, brains. Really? Six me out. I love brains. Yeah, when I was in graduate school, we'd go for our, one of the things we'd eat when we were all drunk was this thing called the ox, the Oxford, the ox. Anyways, they had a brains and eggs dish. Okay. And it was like a thing. Like people, buddy, you'd come from out of town and you'd get all wasted. And then he'd be like, oh, let's go. And you got to have, you're like, you have to have the. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to have the brains and eggs at the Ox. And it was like a rite of passage uh, when you passed through Missoula, Montana. And my God, it's just like, I just don't like brains. And I don't like lungs. Mm. We don't, again, not a legal food in America. What are you talking about? Lungs? Lungs are not legal. Like, that's why you can't get haggis in a restaurant. Oh, I didn't know that. We've yeah. had them, like... You can have... I mean, we've had them out of game an, We've had them out of game animals. Yeah, I've never had it. Is it weird and spongy? Yeah. Yeah. It's foamy. They used to call them the lights. Like, shoot the lights out. Yeah. Yeah, hit them in the lungs. I think in, like, British cookbooks, they call them... The lights. The lights. Yeah. Yeah. I've had it... Uh, the one time I had lungs, it wasn't that bad, is we got a feral... We were hunting and, and got a feral lamb. Oh, really? And my buddy cooked the lungs on it. And it wasn't like that off-putting. But yeah, brains, lungs, it's foamy. Because you like tongues and balls and stuff like that. Yeah, I do. I appreciate all that stuff. I was telling you, I never got to tell you this. The I was doing your balls. I saw you cooking balls on your show. Hot buttered buck balls? Yeah. yeah. The, and I fucked up because I didn't, t- <laughs> I didn't take the balls out of their like scrotum, like out of the outer casing. Oh, and it burst. And it burst. Yeah, we had a person write in that they uh, were injured and hospitalized from a bursting ball. <laughs> That's He should never admit to that. But you can uh, just score the skin a little bit. But if then you don't I want ate the skin. Oh, it doesn't matter. I eat skin. Oh, I didn't like the skin. Oh, it really? Me out. It's like eating octopus. I don't know, man. I think it was, it was like I was getting over the fact that I was ready eating balls, and I was expecting... Just a, you know, a soft balliness. You didn't like that little chew. And then I got a chew and it's veiny. There's veins on it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, 
there's like ratio wise, there's just not that much ball on an animal. So yeah. you get a lot more meat than ball. Right, right. But no, brains, I don't like that. There's probably a couple other foods I can't stand. Uh, do you have a desert island food? Like, I guess if you're stuck on a desert island, there's one thing you can, you can, you, you have to eat forever. Oh, yeah. I would just eat like, uh, mule deer back straps i guess really oh, i eat it all day man really yeah interesting like i could have hung mi- with, i could have hung with the plains i could have hung with the plains tribes <laughs> yeah i'd be perfectly comfortable the unctuousness of like an aged steak does that just bore you i i, I like it lot la- like you know my wife she doesn't hunt but she eats a lot of wild game mm-hmm. and she doesn't like um high quality beef really it's too fatty yeah i get that well especially when you're used to lean yep. game animals she doesn't if it's like super soft if you're like oh yeah this is like objectively a good steak like it's very tender very heavily marbled she just like doesn't want to go near it i think she likes rangy old desert animals man yeah like well that's thinly sliced <laughs> that's the trade-off though yeah. i think you're substituting fat unctuousness for interesting flavors yeah for different flavors which is more exciting especially the older you get i feel like the older i get i'm more into like organs and like Weird things that... Oh, yeah. I mean, like, kids don't, like, run toward that stuff. No, no, You develop it later. Yeah. Last question. Do you have a restaurant pet peeve? Yeah. I don't like... I got a number of them. Okay, great. Yeah, so do I. One of them is I don't like when waiters are overly familiar. Yeah. If they pull up a chair... You're leaving. If they describe the food as though they have somehow had a hand in it... And making it. Yeah. Like what I have. Oh, my specials today. I have a salmon that you're going to love. It's cooked on a plancha. Fuck, um, fuck you and your plancha. It's not your plancha. Yeah, I can't stand that. Man, I got so many restaurant pets. I don't want to sound like an old, mean old man. No, it's okay. But I have my own thing that I'm trying to correct. What's that? Is I caught myself. Oh, another one. Are you still working on that? Oh, yeah. I heard a lingu- I was heard an interview with a linguist. And the linguist was talking about trying to describe the work he does. Yeah. And he was saying, for instance, you don't need to go back very far. And no one said, are you still working on that? And then almost overnight in restaurants around the country, we said, are you still working on that? He's like, that came from somewhere. And it spread very quickly. Yeah. I'm interested in where that came from. Yeah. (laughs) Are you still working on that? Did, but, he, uh, did he figure it out? No, he was just, he was giving a for instance of a thing that he would, yeah, uh, yeah. for instance of a question that <laughs> right. he would entertain, right? As a linguist, uh, I've caught myself recently doing the I'll do, I'll do the, and I have been very working very hard <laughs> to go with. Um, I would have, I will have, I would like, I'll do the, pasta. and then I'm not gonna do. Yeah, it's not awful. No, just work, just self improvement. You yeah. always got to be reassessing, looking at yourself, where you're at, where you want to be. I have a tough time, man. <laughs> I have so many fucking pet peeves. Oh yeah, man. It's very like if I'm sitting there with a friend and they take my friend's plate because he's done eating and I'm not done eating, I fucking lose my shit. That's just fussy. I hate it. It's not fussy. Oh, you mean fussy on their part or my fussy? No, it's fussy on your part. Who cares? Because then I feel pressure to finish, or they feel pressure to finish. Let's say if I was done, they take my plate away. I feel like it's wrong to the person I'm eating with because then you're gonna feel like, oh, I gotta finish up faster. I wouldn't feel that way. In Europe, they don't do that. In game serve in Europe, they don't do that. <laughs> I would like, I don't care what he does on your end of the deal. I'm not going to change my cadence. Really? No, hell no. I, but other people. That's pe- a stupid pet peeve. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> uh, awesome. Steve Ranella, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug? I feel like I'd steal your listeners if they found out about our podcast. No. Go on Netflix and watch, um, go on Netflix, listen to this podcast, listen to the whole thing. Go on Netflix and and watch Meat Eater. Yeah. Television show. What do you think would be a good episode of your show for someone who's not into hunting? I would go and watch, you know, the the most recent season that's up there. Mm -hmm. Just go watch the first episode of the most recent season. Which one was it? If I'm not mistaken, I think it's one where we're fishing for flathead catfish. Oh, yeah. And hunting squirrels in Missouri. Yeah. And then if you're interested in wild foods, we have a book, a cookbook called The Meat Eater Fishing Game Cookbook, Recipes and Techniques for Every Hunter and Angler. Awesome. And it gets into a lot of the things that we've talked about. And listen, I'll say, listen to Steve's podcast. Yeah, you could. I guess you could. Meat Eater Podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you. This episode of Green Eggs and Dan was produced by Andrew Steven. 
Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. The theme music is Beautiful Food by Idan, and interstitial music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to Meat Eater Studio. To see pictures of Steve Ranella's fridge, information about the restaurants mentioned in the episode, and more, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at StandUpDan. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.